If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. Hope you've had a great couple of weeks. Thanks for all the feedback from the Lauren Cox conversation. I even got a message from Lauren's mom. It's very sweet. And I'm so excited to have Daniel Cohen back on the uh, podcast today, Dr. Dan, uh, to discuss the power of language and self-hypnosis. How we talk is how we think. How we think is how we feel. And how we feel is how we act. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. It's my hope that through these conversations that you hear on Highway to Health, you can make more informed choices in how you build your own blueprint for health and well-being. If you're a regular listener, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear how you're implementing at least one thing you've received from one of my guests here on the podcast. You can shoot me an email at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. Uh, with your help, we'll also be bringing you more resource this year in our third year through a website being developed that will have its own search engine for health topics from podcasts, guests, and contributors to a new resource site. Uh, as a producer and editor, it is my job to make sure that everything you listen to, watch, and read here on the site is reputable, straight from the source of someone who has dedicated their career to improving our livelihood. If, you, if you'd like to help make this project come to life, uh, become a contributor. You can donate for as little as $1 a month. Go to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. And if you want to learn more about the plans we have here in store for this project, or you can check out the two-minute video of me explaining this on our Patreon page. And uh, just a quick reminder that we're now on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Buzzsprout, and, and soon to be on highwaytohealthpodcast.com. So whether you're in need of some inspiration on the drive to work, staying motivated at your desk, underground with your earbuds in on the subway or at the gym, we're here for you. And uh, one, one more th quick thank you to those of you who have taken the time to rate this podcast and comment. Highway to Health is now ranked 122 in uh, health and self-help self podcasts in the UK. Strange, uh, but exciting too. So thanks to all of you, all of my UK friends. And um, I want to share one of the comments that I got this past month. It says, have been extremely impressed with this podcast. Fantastic guests with valuable wisdom and experience. They are excited to share with useful takeaways for me always. I think Jeremy is an excellent interviewer. Unlike many male podcasters, he does not talk over his guests, nor does he mansplain. He communicates a wealth of knowledge from his own work and his genuine interest in other people's journeys comes through. This really touched me and, and I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for these kind words. You know, working on a podcast is sometimes a solitary business, which suits me for the most part, but it's always great to get this kind of feedback. And everything you said here is something that I've given a great deal of thought to, who the guests are, the takeaways, 
and making sure I'm not talking over my guests and mansplaining. So thank you for recognizing these things, and I'll do my best to stay on this track. So my guest today is Dr. Daniel Cohen. He's an internationally recognized developmental behavioral pediatrician and an expert educator in clinical hypnosis. He's taught thousands of physicians through the University of Minnesota since 1978. His work focuses on empowering children and teaching them skills before pills, as he's known to say. If you want to learn more about his story and his career, you can go back and listen to our first uh, conversation on the podcast, which is still available through your podcast app. Um, I've, I've been fortunate in my career to work with all ages of people in my practice, from newborns to end of life. I see certain patterns from this and, and recently had a thought that kept running through my mind. The topic of belief systems and how they work for us or against us has come up a number of times in conversations here on the podcast. And being that it relates to self-hypnosis, I thought Dr. Dan, as he's affectionately known to his younger clients, uh, would know and have a lot, of, a lot to say about this and bring a lot to the dialogue. While we talked about children in this conversation, there's an aspect of what is discussed here that I know you'll be able to relate to because many of us are still working through behavioral patterns that stem from our childhoods. Keep your ears tuned for this one. He plants lots of important seeds for us. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Daniel Cohen. What I'm curious about is, you know, I, I, I know how you are using hypnotherapy and hypnosis but I think most people's idea of of that is so outdated in the way that it's that it's actually being used in, in you know therapeutic treatment. So I'm curious to to hear like your background in, in using it and like a, a definition that you go by. Yeah. So several things come to mind. One is I I, I would uh, first I'll tell you the the sort of definition that at least I and my associates and people with whom I co-write things or co-teach, utilize as a definition, especially when we're teaching other professionals, mm -hmm. and ways that I talk with families about it. But it, it's also curious that just yesterday I had an email from a colleague uh, with this definition, uh, with his definition, mm -hmm. asking for my response. And I think it might be interesting to yeah, yeah, kind of go through it. that. But so in general, I'm uh, I'm inclined to tell people the, the definition that I utilize is that hypnosis is a state of mind, a state of consciousness that is either induced or invited or, you know, now, now we're having regular conversation and now we're going to do this hypnosis. Right. So that's right. one way of thinking about that, and I'll come back to that. Okay. And the other is the acknowledgement, which, which I think most people are unaware of, that it's a spontaneous state that people move in and out of all day long. Mostly as we broaden and then narrow our focus and our concentration. Yeah. And when we do that in our, in our natural state, without the word hypnosis, without talking about it, without hearing about it, without being invited, we are doing we, that, that condition, that state has a lot of the same, some would say all, I would say most of the same characteristics that are operative when people are using this clinical hypnosis for a purpose. Right. So 
it's a state of mind in which there is narrowed focus and concentration on some idea with the purpose of making a change of some kind. Achieving a goal, solving a problem, reducing discomfort, reducing anxiety, eliminating a habit, and a myriad of other things that fall in subcategories of that. So that said, uh, there have been... It, it is both a good thing and a not-so-good thing for the field of clinical hypnosis that that there is no final agreed-upon scientific definition. Right. The, the good part about that is that it allows people the flexibility and the creativity, the clinician people, the flexibility and the creativity to utilize the concepts in the way that's most appropriate for a given client or patient mm-hmm. rather than, this is the way you do it. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and that's old style. That's, you know, we, most of us who do this clinically in a healthcare setting decry the use of the authoritarian image that you would see in right. commercials that you, or in, and in movies and which you still see in cartoons where the person who is portrayed as the hypnotist, which is a word we don't use, right. um, is often evil. Yeah. Controlling, yeah. directive. Try to move your arm. You can't. You can't. You'll only listen to my words. Blah blah blah. <laughs> right. Blah, blah, right. Blah, blah. You know, and and uh, and and to a person. And, and I'll keep saying this until <laughs> it stops. When I meet somebody new, and the word hypnosis comes up, and there's a child in the room who's there for help with something, I I I would say you know I want to say I could say I played dumb, but but I really. I just do this because I want to facilitate hearing from them. I say, well, hypnosis, what's that? And sometimes you get an equally snotty response. And they say, well, don't you know you're supposed to be the expert? And I say, no, no, no. I'm asking because I'm I'm very interested in what you think, what you've heard, what you know. And typically to a person, including some adults, they say nothing. But instead, one hand or the other goes out in front of them and they dangle an imaginary watch at the end of an imaginary chain. Yeah. And, and sometimes they add words like, you're getting very sleepy. And I laugh and I say, where'd you see that? And they say, oh, I saw it in cartoons. I said, well, what happens next? Well, then <laughs> the, the, you know, Bugs Bunny or the Roadrunner, their eyes get all swirly and then they close their eyes and then they fall off the cliff or they go to sleep. And then what? And then... He tells them what to do when he wakes them up. And then what? And then he snaps his fingers and they wake up. And then what? And then they go and kill somebody or they go, <laughs> or they go you know, give them money or they go do other, other sort of unsavory things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. Right. None of that is true. None of that is at all operative in, in the field of clinical hypnosis where we are teaching people what to do, how to capture their own skills, and to use them for some purpose for which they, for which they came in the first place. Yeah, and 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 we get stuck in these in these in this terminology, these words. I mean, we we don't have a better word for it at this point. Maybe you know, like we hypnosis or the the the, the idea of what we had. I guess hypnosis still works. It's just that. We're we're so attached to this old way of thinking about what it is that now the word itself means something else to people until they really are are informed. Because 
I think medicine in some ways has, has changed in the exact same way that we've probably shifted in, in hypnotherapy, where the, the authoritarian way of, of, of practicing medicine has also changed. You know, we, we, that, was, that was maybe to some extent why people got involved in different kinds of work. You know, I think there are some people who get very drawn to being police officers because they like the power, they, being politicians. Right. Same with doctors and lawyers and everybody else. And, you know, there, there, there I'm sure was a breed of, of hypnotherapists who played this role and, and loved that role. But I, I think by and large, that was never the case. They were, they were exploring a, a part of the mind that we were still and are still learning a lot about, but certainly have learned a lot in the last, you know, 60, 70 years. Yeah, I think that's right. Boy, we could spend three hours just on what you just said. But, but it's, so, so let me just add something to that. The... I think there are still people who come to hypno, uh, doctor people, helper people who come to hypnosis courses with mistaken ideas, and that's why part of our training curricula emphasize demythification and yeah. demystification and what's really the case and what isn't. And and uh, so a word about the words, we, you know, hypnosis. The, the Greek word hypnosis is the origin of the word hypnosis and hypnotism and hypnotist and, and these kinds of words but but it's a Greek word that means sleep mm-hmm. and nothing could be further from the truth except that one good, really good thing about hypnosis skills is that it's a very, very easy way to help people who have a problem with insomnia yeah so you it can it can absolutely facilitate falling asleep easily, but hypnosis, on, on the, yeah. On the other side of that, it's 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 actually about waking up. Absolutely. I mean, that's the other interesting part. Yeah, it's it's about enhanced awareness, focused concentration. Yeah. And uh, so, first of all, I don't hypnotize anybody. It's not a verb, except reflexively. So I know how to hypnotize myself and. Mm-hmm. And and I say this to patients that if you want to learn how to hypnotize yourself, if you have a reason that you want to learn this skill that you already have but you don't know that you have, then I can show you because because you know it's all about words and definitions. What is do, what does the word doctor mean? I even ask this to my colleagues who are doctors, and often I I get answers that are not true to the dictionary. Mm. They say healer. So well, we would hope that doctors are healers, but the word physician means healer, but the word doctor means teacher. Mm. PhD is a doctor of philosophy in geology, science, zoology, botany, right, what, right. You know, whatever. And uh, doctor of medicine, MD, doctor of medicine, is teacher of medicine. That's my job. And I'm sorry to say that a lot of physicians still believe, independent of hypnosis, still believe... And which is why patients still believe this. They go to the doctor and the doctor tells them what to do. And they do what they say. Yeah. I meet lots of people, less now than 20 years ago, who have X, Y, or Z problem and they are told by their doctor to take X, Y, or Z medicine and they take it. And I say, oh, so you're taking that? Yeah. How long have you been taking it? Two years. Does it help? No. Nope. But you're still taking still it. Taking yeah, well, the doctor said to. Yeah. I said, well, so let's get something straight in our, in our emerging relationship. I may have some ideas for you to consider, but if they don't work, I want you to tell me, and I don't want you to do them. Yeah. If, if they don't help you, please tell me. We'll <laughs> right, figure out right. something that, that does work together. Cause this is, and that's another way from the get-go in sort of driving the partnership that, 
that healthcare should really be. Right. So back to the definition. I, I really want to. Um, oh, let me go back to the word for a moment. Many years ago, uh, more than thirty-five years ago, when my colleagues and I wrote this p- paper, which still stands as the largest series of uh, of patients, child patients treated with hypnosis. There were over 500. We just kept track of serially of, mm-hmm. uh, of the patients we saw and, and uh, what the outcomes were. And we decided when we published the paper that we were, we were going to call it, we were going to do our best to figure out different nomenclature. What could this be called? Mm-hmm. And so we said self-hypnosis training, parentheses, relaxation, and mental imagery. To to provide a new synonym that we would then use um, repeatedly, at least whatever right, we yeah, wrote, yeah. hoping that it would catch on and yeah. we would use this in teaching and so on. Well, it, it didn't particularly catch on, but we still continue to use it and the the abbreviation RMI. And why that? Because those seem to be the operative features of the clinical hypnosis experience, at least with children and I think with adults too. Yeah, yeah. Although Relaxation. Having said that, relaxation is not mandated or required. There are plenty of people who spend a lot of their professional lives in a hypnotic state, professional athletes, dancers, yeah. singers, actors, you know, who, who take on a different persona. They're different who they are when they're in that role. Right. And they can tell you. They can tell you in focus that what they do to batters that go into a slump in baseball, go see a therapist or, and they learn some self-hypnosis skills and their batting average jumps 60, 70 points right. because they learn those skills. And now most, even college teams and even some high school teams, as well as the pros and Olympic teams, have a sports psychologist or equivalent who teaches those imagery skills mm. to their patients. They're, they're, they're not their patients, to their team. Right, right. And... And they're they're deigned to call it hypnosis. They, they it's guided imagery. It's uh, in all sorts of names for it. And and some of it, even when it's good, some of it is problematic from our clinical perspective because it may be scripted. Right. And the only script that's appropriate is the script that I co-write with my patient. Right. In in, in an ongoing real time fashion. Well, and it's the challenge that you would face with with anyone who's. Um, trying to seek this kind of training in a group setting too, I think you know right. there, there there are there are aspects that you can do in a group setting once you've gone through the introductory phase of something. But to 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 you know have have a rote way of sort of, of teaching somebody hypnosis or or me- meditation in a in a group setting makes it a, a lot more difficult when you're when, when you really need to get that understanding of of that person. And this is kind of getting into what I think, you know, you and I have been talking about a little bit, which is that if you don't understand this person's, you know, point of view or, or their belief system around, you know, how, how they become well or how they stay well, then w- where do you start? Exactly. And, that, and that's where you start rather than sometimes, I don't get this question very often, but sometimes the child is connected to where I'm going and what I'm talking about, even in the first visit and the parent is sitting kind of tapping their foot and looking around and looking at their clock and, and at their watch and wondering. And sometimes they will say, not very often, well, when are we going to get to the hypnosis? And 
<laughs> I'm, I'm very sort of incredulous about that. I usually say, well, if we decide we're going to do this thing called hypnosis, it's only going to happen after we get to know each other and we understand what the goals are, what the problem has been, what's good about it, what's bad about it, and so on. And most of the time that's sufficient to satisfy that urgency that comes out of we're tired of this symptom, this problem, we want help, we've been to one, two, three, four, whatever others. And thankfully, in in 2019, I am no longer very often the last stop on the line. Right. Much more often I get the referral from the primary care physician day one mm-hmm. uh, or day two. And, and because I know them, or I've been in the community yeah. a long time yeah. and so on. But in the old days, it was like, oh, we've been to so many people. How long have you had this problem? Two years, five years, you know? Yeah. And it's like, oh. And I'm thinking the same thing they're thinking was, I wish I had met you sooner. Yeah. And sometimes people say that. Because you get the, the, the sort of difference... Um, the the documentary you suggested that I that I watch heal uh, that you can watch it on Netflix anyone who's listening that is interested in this but kind of gets into this whole idea of belief system and one of the things they were talking about with that is this you know the diagnosis versus the prognosis and that it's it's such a powerful thing because it really does matter where we enter into the conversation Absolutely. with them if, if the prognosis has become their belief system once they once they get to us. Meaning that if the, if the you know the therapist or physician or whoever is working with them says, well, this is the problem, this is what you can expect, you know, this is the timeline, you know, that kind of stuff. That starts to it's almost like you know being a witch doctor. You you've, you've now set these pieces into this person's brain, and and those have to be changed then. And there's many pieces to that. Sad to say, and I spend a lot of time thinking about that because I've been an educator for a long time, and you, you know what what people bring to the table is so so important. So the most doctors who do that with their patients, what you were just describing. Do it good-heartedly. Yeah, right. The intention is, oh, I want to, I want to tell the truth. So, full disclosure, driven in part by insurance companies and mm-hmm. and uh, lawyers who have nothing else to do, and and uh, but with good intention, and they will defend it. And and, and looking at the research that and, and their experience, they're trying well, to most of the time people that and they don't want to they don't yeah, want to mislead yeah. people who and have them come back and say, well, you never told me that exactly. this could happen, and so, so on. So it's self protective too. I must tell you, at the risk of at the risk of saying this to a public audience, when when I do prescribe medicines, and I do, I'm a physician, and sometimes yeah. I prescribe medication when it's appropriate, but my general attitude is skills before pills mm-hmm. and and most people are quite content with that yeah. but when i do prescribe it i tell them i i wouldn't prescribe something to you that wasn't safe here's what you can expect from it but everybody's different so we really won't know until you start using it but the rule on this medicine is start low go slow i want to hear from you this is not here's a prescription call me in 6 months right. i don't i don't work that way and when you pick this up at the pharmacy it's going to come in a bottle and there's going to be a circular inside of it on paper with about four or six point font. And it's going to be hard to read and some people need a magnifying glass, but I suggest you don't even bother reading it. If you decide to read it anyway, the, my absolute rule is call me if you don't understand a word and call me if you, do, if you don't understand anything in it or if it scares you or whatever. Yeah. Or if because you can't I, remember because sometimes you, know, you, you walk out, you're, you're kind of in a daze from you. You're not quite sure why you're even, right being prescribed something and you go to the pharmacy and you're kind of 
you know, your, your stress response might be a little up. That's going to cloud your brain a little bit. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, am I supposed to eat something with this? So, you know, and, and you, you need to have that. I mean, I, I actually think that's an amazing thing that you do that and really kind of go through that with people. Cause I think too many times people don't feel like they can reach back out again and say, I, I'm sorry, I totally spaced this thing. I can't remember. Well, no, I insist that people know, and I'm at the end of every first visit, every, every child and every, each parent get my card, and I point out what the phone number is, what the fax number is, what the email is, and that I expect to hear from them if they have any questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. I'll go over everything as many times as you want. The goal is for us to be on the same page. And, and uh, you know, and sometimes it, it, it takes, because people seem to want it or need it, a moment or two of explanation of why these circulars are made, that it comes out of federal law intended to protect people, both the company and and the, the taker of the medicine. And for reasons that I wasn't around to, to understand when these laws were created, yeah. they are required to put in the circular the results of every experiment they ever did with any guinea pig or rat or mouse in a, in a laboratory long before these were ever used in people and tested and found to be safe. Hmm. So... The reality is I can't promise you just because I only prescribe things that I know to be safe and right. tell you that you take, take it the way I I recommend because it's not true that if one is good, two is twice as good. It's, it's just not true. Right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, if you notice something that you don't understand or that you didn't think would happen, like if you get a nose, extra nose growing out of the top of your head, you should call me. <laughs> so we can discuss that. You yeah. could even stop the medicine before you call me. Yeah. But I want to I go back to the definition because I really yeah, want to yeah. read, this, uh, read this thing that oh, I just, yeah. just got in the mail from a colleague who, who is always thinking about hypnosis and ways to define it. So he wrote me this and he said, I'm going to be giving two talks, one to parents in a few days and another one at a, at a, at a course at a university whose name I shall leave out um, in a couple of months. And so playing with this week's definition of hypnosis, is there anything you'd like to add mm. or to ask? Yeah. So he says, quote, hypnosis is a language-based permissive relational skill set evoking sensory absorption and promoting an attention shift away, away and from reasoning and rumination and toward curiosity and new possibilities using naturalistic suggestibility. Hmm. That's all one sentence. And you said, hmm, and you're right. I thought about it. So I, I wrote back, um, interspersing, uh, in my words, in a different color amidst the different parts of that yeah, sentence. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I said, uh, in relation to a language-based permissive, I said, well, some hypnosis work is defined by the needs of the patient or the client, more in adults than in children, but true in some of each, is particularly permissive as some patients' clients' needs and demeanor seem to require. But others require a very directive or even authoritative approach, which is hearkening back to the way it's portrayed in films. It's not that we think that's terrible for everyone. Yeah. It's that we think that that as a starting point for everyone, is a serious mistake. Yeah, yeah. And then in the context of developing a rapport and relationship with somebody, some people, for whatever reason, in their background, their culture, their family, have no initiative. Yeah. 
right. and need to be told what to do, at least to get started. That, that's the, that's, that was always been my take too, is that I, I call it like the handholding period. Exactly. You know, where it's like, I, I, I want to empower this person, but they're, they're and sometimes in such a powerless place that if I don't step up, step up and, and really direct that beginning, we're not going to get anywhere either. Perfect. And it's all about empowerment. And everybody does that and has that in a different way. Right. And in some, you see that it's already there and you can skip that step. <laughs> because, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so, so here's the rest of it. Uh, relational skill set, I responded by saying, huh, I wonder if a skill set per se can be permissive and authoritarian. Rather, how it's taught may be permissive or authoritarian. And is that then the skill set of the clinician and not of the recipient? So I, I wrote that mostly to be provocative for him. <laughs> and then he said, evoking sensory absorption or promoting an attention shift away from reasoning and rumination toward curiosity. Uh, I told him this whole turn of a phrase was from evoking all the way to the end is great, and it's a really accurate description of what I hope and desire to happen. Using naturalistic suggestibility, I wondered with him about the meaning of naturalistic, which seems to reference the patient's suggestibility, and I think it might work better if you were going to write it down to say utilizing the patient's or subject's naturally occurring suggestibility, which is, by the way, yeah. independent of healthcare, something used very well by marketing people and used car salesmen and, right. and the guys on late night television cable who are selling God knows what, standing behind a mahogany desk and a big bookshelf of very important looking books. And how they look and how they dress and how they speak is every bit a piece of playing to what they understand to be the suggestibility of the audience. Right, yeah. Which is why, <laughs> from a historical perspective, I, I, you probably know this, but I don't know if you, the audience will know, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, in the early days of television, 50, late 50s, early 60s, became aware that some TV people we're putting advertising in, in a blink of an eye. Yeah, just a flash. As a flash. You, you wouldn't not even, even see it. Not even noticed by the, by the discerning eye. Yeah. But slow down the recording of that and they would find it and then they outlawed it because it was, it was con considered to be inappropriate subliminal yeah. advertising yeah. and manipulation. Yeah. Which still goes on in all sorts of other ways. It, it does go on, you know, sad to say. But, but yeah. So I thought that was very interesting and, and very timely. I'll have to tell him that he contributed to a podcast and by his definition. But there's that, that's, it's, it's interesting. And, I, and so, so to give, given that, could, could you take me through like what a, you know, sort of what that beginning phase is, you know, with a person when you're gathering, when you're information gathering, and then how you start to, bring the, the, the hypnosis part of it or, you know, teach self-hypnosis or, or whatever it is with that? So it, it's, uh, it's also very timely. I don't believe in coincidences particularly. It's nice this is happening now because just, actually, I don't remember if it was earlier this week or end of last week, but, but I met a new patient who is uh, 10 years old. They came from 
several hours drive away. This uh, child's background is that he happened to be adopted when he was in, in the, late in his first year of life, a little bit late for, for an adoption, yeah. for an adoption, and, and uh, he was about eight months of age. He's the only child of a, of a more than middle-aged couple and, uh, and clearly a very loved and, and lovely child. Now he's, is he 10 or 11? Maybe he's 11. And, uh, would that be right? Maybe he's 12. He's 12. And, and I heard on the phone he was referred by the pediatrician who had seen him just once and who, who knew that this problem was out of her league yeah. and talked to somebody else who both of us know and that somebody else suggested she call me and she called me and we talked about it and then referred them here. And uh, so he has a problem with ticks. Okay. Not, not, the, not the biting kind that live on dogs, but, right, the, right. but the twitching kind, yeah. T-I-C-S, not T-I-C-K-S. And, uh, and, and they began um, four years earlier when he was eight. Okay. Out of the blue. Behavioral or physical or how? Physical. Okay. Eye blinking, began as eye blinking and went to see a neurologist at a, at a uh, famous place that shall remain nameless. <laughs> and, uh, and they were told that uh, they, they needed all sorts of tests, and so they did all sorts of tests. And, and predictably, especially in retrospect, <laughs> predictably the tests were all normal. I have no idea if their insurance paid for it or if it cost them a lot of money, but they would have been really expensive tests, yeah. MRI, brain scan, various blood tests, and all normal. Um, and the explanation was that they had to do all of those because they didn't have any biologic family history and they needed to have okay. biologic. Okay. So short of that, needed to do all these tests. Well, I happen to disagree, but... This is this is not medical science. Good medicine is both art and science, right. not one or the right. other. So, and I have to work very hard to not be judgmental, especially about things that are <laughs> water over the dam. You know, I mean, it's like it's done. So, right. yeah. Um, well, what did that doctor say to do? Well, nothing, just to wait. And that had been uh, about four months into having the ticks. Okay. And, and and the message was apparently sufficiently reassuring in the sense that uh, it's just eye blinking and much of these these often go away, and that's true, except when they don't go away. Right. And they didn't. And then and every parent's going to worry. Yeah. That that's never going to change. Exactly. And the longer it goes, the and then they get hope because they do disappear mm-hmm. for a while and then they come back and sometimes what disappears is the original eye blinking and a different kind of tick appears facial grimacing uh-huh. or shoulder shrugging or head nodding head bobbing various other things and soon he also began to make some vocalizations that were unusual and thankfully not really loud and thankfully not uh, obscene words which can which can happen yeah. with his particular yeah. condition and so they, they sought some other, quote, quote, cures, went to see a naturopath uh, who said, I don't know what this is. I don't know if these will help, but try some of this and gave several so-called natural healing uh, 
things to to take. Yeah, some vitamins, some other supplements, and I and I said, "How'd that go?" Yeah. Well, he didn't like taking them, and they didn't do anything, so we stopped. They said, "Good, that was the smart thing to do." Did you tell them that? No, we didn't tell them, but we didn't go back. Oh, okay. Right. What'd you think then? Well, I didn't know what to think. So I said, "It was well, it was really smart to seek another opinion." And and the doctor that you went to was new for you, but was she nice to you? I already knew this that she was good. Yeah. And yes, she was. And she said to that she talked to you, and she said that you were very optimistic on the phone, and so I was I was hopeful. So that that's always what I'm going for right. if I have the opportunity to, you know, that's not always there. Sometimes it's go see this guy, he'll help you, which is better than he could help. I don't know. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so while we were talking, it's always my intention that rapport comes first and in the context of rapport mm-hmm. to begin to provide shifts in language, shifts in frame of reference. No conversation about hypnosis until and unless they bring it up or until and unless I think it's timely to bring it up. And that almost never happens at a first visit, even though I meet with people for an hour and a half the first first encounter. But I do start making shifts in language. And when they notice it, I say, so you probably noticed that I'm interrupting you from time to time and Suggesting that instead of trying, we do, and instead of can't, we say can't, haven't yet, yeah. uh, and, and things like that. And I said, here's the reason. How we talk is how we think. How we think is how we feel. And how we feel is how we act. Another word for mm-hmm. act is behave. Right. Although kids usually hear the word behave attached to don't yes, behave right, that way. Right. But behavior is what we do all the time, right? And so our actions are, come from our feelings, and those come from our thinking, and those come from how we talk. So if we want to change an action, a behavior, whatever it is, an itch, a pain, a habit, whatever, it starts by how we talk about it. That then has a fighting chance to change how we think about it. Mm-hmm. And when we change how we think about it, we can begin to change how we feel, and then we can begin to change how we behave and act. And you, when, when I say that, people get this, huh, kind of aha yeah. look on their face, although there's nothing magical about it, and I don't, I don't pretend I, I, I might be one of the only people who says that that way, but I, don't mean, I didn't invent it. Right. It just came to me. I don't think I ever read it anywhere. Yeah. But yeah. it came to me as something, and as long as it's working, I'm going to continue saying that. So that was there. Now, what happened as we were talking, I, I began to hear more about this, and I'm like, so who knows about this? Because I'm going for what you said earlier about, well, what's what's the culture of this? People, it's not just a person and their condition or their problem. Right. They live in a family. The family lives in a community. Kids have different kinds of communities. They have the neighborhood. They have the school community. They have they have their, their church or other faith community. And, and now they're social media communities. Exactly. And so do other people, well, you know, my mom knows, my dad knows. Well, my teacher knows. She's really good. And the mother says, no, no, your teacher is awesome. So, I, you know, Note to self, I've learned something really important about 
another source of of how to help this kid. He, yeah, he's already yeah. got that. The, yeah. the teacher is awesome. So the teacher, so I check with the mother. The teacher does not call attention. The teacher notices some of the tick behaviors, but the, these vocalizations that the child has are terrible and loud, but only at home. Hmm. So I asked him about that. I said, so really, this mostly at home with the noises? Yeah. How come? And he said to me, he's only 12, and he's kind of a not near puberty 12. Yeah. It's better, I think, yeah. to be later in puberty than earlier, just in general, for the kid, for the <laughs> yeah. family, for everybody. Yeah. But he's a young 12. Yeah. And he says, you know, kind of, you don't, I don't hear that too much from 12-year-olds. You know is like... I know how to think. <laughs> right. You know, and, I've, I've given this a fair amount of consideration. Yeah, and and you know, most twelve-year-olds don't have a conscience. They're not supposed to, you know, and they haven't learned abstract reasoning yet. Yeah. yeah. But this boy has it, and he says, "Well, you know, I think, I think it's because I think it's those those sounds come out at home because I know I know that's where I'm loved." Wow. Oh my god. Yeah, wow is right. And even even saying that it it touches me. I I I remember kind of taking a breath and saying, "Good for you." Yeah. I said, "That's right." And the mother was near tears already just yeah. hearing that. Yeah. She hadn't heard that from him, and it really changed the way she could think about it. And I and I after I settled down from my own being choked up about it, I I said, "You're probably right." On the other hand, it probably bothers them. Bothers them that the parents the, hearing that, hearing that, those yeah, sounds yeah. and coming out of or the they, blue. or they worry that it's that it's something that in their own behavior or their right. relationship dynamic that might be bringing it out. Yeah, and uh, I said, but it probably doesn't bother them as much as it bothers you. Right. Yeah. And he just kind of nodded his head. He didn't speak, but he's <laughs> like, I, and what I got from that is. You're getting what I'm going for, yeah, which is yeah. that this work doesn't happen over there or over here. It happens in between us, yeah. back and forth. Yeah. And so then, I, I don't know, I, I trust my intuition when I'm working right, with yeah. patients. And so it came to mind <clears throat> to revisit the history, and which I, which I always do when there's been onset at a time that doesn't really make any sense. Right. So, so I said... Your mom has probably already thought a great deal about this, but this started when you were eight, right? Yep. Um, what else started when you were eight besides being eight? You went yeah. from seven to being eight. How was eight compared to seven? Oh, it was better. Hmm. Yeah, because you're getting older growing up. Yeah. 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 And then and then when did this start? And he told me, and I said, well, you know, just woke up one day and your, your eyes were blinking. You know, and they, I don't know, they checked with the doctor to make sure there wasn't an infection or an allergy or whatever. But yeah. That common common response to that, appropriate common response. Yeah. And uh, so, so then I asked him and his mother, what are the standard kinds of questions? Well, either then or before then by a month or two, was there any big change in the family? Did you move? No, was mm-hmm. there so first open ended, then yeah, closed ended yeah. questions, you know. Did you move? Was there was there a death in the family? Was was there did you get a new pet? Did 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 
best friend moved to Texas. You, you know, yeah. negative on all of this. Right? And you don't know anybody else in your, you know, anything about the biologic family. So you don't know if there were these problems in any right. of those yeah. people. Yeah. But uh, how about the, how about the current family? No, nobody. Because sometimes habitual behaviors develop for all sorts of reasons. Right. They, they may be imitative behaviors of other people. They right. may be yeah, something yeah. saw on TV, whatever. And, and often we never find out. Um, so then I said, I really, I really did say this, to, said to him, because I, because I wanted to plant a seed before we did anything formal. I said, so let me understand this. So, so this started when you were eight. Yeah. So, and now you're 12. Right. So for eight years, no ticks, right? Yeah. And four years, some ticks, right? Hmm. So I often, I often use my hands out in front of me, palms up, as a way of describing what I'm going to say verbally. So, so I said, so in that computer called the brain, there's a small file down here called ticks with a small amount of memory four years yeah and he's like he nods yeah and in another part of that computer we call a brain there's a very large file twice as large eight years worth of memory called no ticks right and and he and he did what you were doing which is he nodded and he shifted into a different state of mind <laughs> with focus. His facial muscles got relaxed. He, he nodded his head. He, he didn't blink his eyes as much, you know. And I said, so really, all we have to do to begin to solve this problem is to figure out how to delete that smaller file and open the bigger file and use it. And that's what he did. He nodded his head. And mm. then I said, I am 100% sure that I can teach you how to do that. But probably not today because we're running out of time. And that was the seed. Yeah. I haven't seen him a second time yet. Yeah, yeah. But, but I know that seed's going to grow. And if, if I need to, mechanistically speaking... Tell the mother that's precisely what I had in mind and what I was doing with that phrase was planting a seed. Yeah. And yes, that's a metaphor for seeds grow, provided we water them properly and take out, the, take out the weeds that grow and make sure if the wind blows them away that we replant them. And, and, and yes, that's a story about a seed in a tree, but ideas grow too and they grow to the solu- toward the solution. I always, I always ask people, and I, yeah, I, somehow I see the question boiling in your, bubbling up in your mind uh, about, well, wait a minute, is that hypnosis? And and the answer is yes. Um, but so I always ask, and I asked him, um, and I'll probably ask him again. I said, so this, this, um, these ticks and these noises, um, is there anything good about them? No, I always get. I never ask the question if I think yeah, that the answer yeah. is going to be yes. But, but, uh, but I want I want to hear, and I want him to hear himself 
say no. And uh, do you need them for anything? No. Definitive. Yeah. Exclamation point. Are you going to miss them when they're gone? Hmm. So the key words there, and, what, and when I make my notes, the key words are written in capital letters, miss when gone. Okay. Those are the words I want the inner mind to hear. Right. You're going to miss them. When, no, why would I miss them? I said, look, I don't, I, I'm not fighting with you. I'm glad that you won't miss them. But here's the deal. I always ask kids these questions because if you need them for something, if you're going to miss them when they're gone, if they serve some meaning, some function, they're good in some way, then I don't want to help you with them. It would be a waste of my time yeah, and yours. Yeah. So then they get it. Plus, the, the underneath message that I'm going for, and, then it, and, and I don't have to explain it, is I want you to know the how come about what we're doing. It's not, this is not mysterious. Yeah, right. And, and the, the other really you know, important thing that I think you did in this situation is you also created this this image that you must have somehow picked up that he would understand a computer, which you, they're twelve years. Tw- oh yeah, I already old, know. Old, you know, he understand. plays video games. Thank you. you know? Right, right. Yeah. So, so, so now you've now you've got you've got this image that he can he can now work with too, and exactly. and, and that that also now becomes a, a construct that probably trumps the whatever else the the other the old construct was on on some level or at least does battle with that construct right right yeah, that's and 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 then and then there is the part that I think is really also really smart which is and I'm sure you deal with with certain kinds of things like this where when you ask the question of a behavioral problem if I'm 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 not going to get my wording right I'm sure but <laughs> if 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 they if they would, you know, miss that thing, or if you know, if, if this, if if this is something that they want to keep, you know, there there may be certain you know behavioral things that the kid actually does like that the parent doesn't like, right? And so then it's a then I'm sure there's got to be some kind of negotiation that goes on as far as like you know how, how that serves the ecosystem or you know the right. the, the child themselves. And of course, and of course, that just goes back to every kid. And every family is different. And that's not the way, you know, I was involved in medical education for 35 years yeah. and still am in another way in teaching these hypnosis workshops. But, but if we teach only this is the way it's done, then we're going to be very, very unhappy because it's not going to work. It's not, you know, it's not one size fits all. Yeah. We have to be creative and flexible and do what fits for the person. You know, I, I, the, the one that always comes to my mind about this is many years ago when I was first doing this work, I've been and maybe, I don't know, three, four years. So we're talking 35 years ago. And, yeah. and, and we were beginning to develop teaching programs and, and uh, hypnosis workshops and whatever. So we wanted to have videotapes of our work in order to demonstrate this is fine to talk about it, but here's how it looks. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and so I had engaged a, a professional videographer who was going to do this, and I, I was going to uh, uh, do this. Th- uh, th- when were you doing it through a one-way? Well, he was filming through a one-way mirror, I guess. It was a one-way window, whatever you call those. Yeah, yeah. And so it was studio-like in its in its and and I was on a roll. This girl was eleven years old. She was a great 
quote, quote, great subject. She had asthma. She had learned self-hypnosis techniques to help her asthma. And I'm like, okay, so um, so what's been happening in your life lately? Because we want to talk about what kind of imagery we might use for this, and it's going to be on video after all. And, and she said, well, I've been, I've been practicing a lot on my French horn and uh, because we have a concert coming up. And uh, uh, I said, oh, well, should, should I talk about that in the, in the hypnosis? Oh, yeah, sure. And okay, great. So go ahead and get started. And she goes right into hypnosis. And, <laughs> and she's sitting there and she's so relaxed and so comfortable. She's got this almost beatific smile on her face, you know. And... <laughs> yeah. and uh, and I'm on a roll. I'm talking about, you know, you you can picture yourself there uh, in the rehearsal room and every note sounds perfectly great and your fingers are moving the right way on the instrument and you hear the tone in your ears and that goes right to your mind and it goes back to your hands and you're playing very well and now you're on stage and the, and the orchestra is uh, introduced and if you look out, you can spot your parents there and you're so happy and they're smiling and... And you play very well, and you maybe you have a solo. I don't know. You'll know, and da, 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 off I go, right? And she's just totally calm and wonderful. And we and we finish at, with the applause of the orchestra, and everybody yeah, you know, yeah. smiles and yeah. bows and yeah. whatever. <clears throat> and uh, and now I'm, now I'm going to wrap up the video with the debriefing of the hypnosis. So are you are you all back alert now here in the room and how how was the concert? She says, you know, um, I went to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, right, that was really good that you went to the beach. What, tell me about that. And then she did. I was there, my friends were there, we were on the beach, we had a sandwich, we had the boombox playing, we went swimming, came back, dried up. I said, and all the while, you could hear me speaking and you just tuned it out and paid attention to the beach. That was really smart. And she said, yeah. I said, so, but equally as positive an experience for her. A, a wonderfully positive experience for her. And the teaching piece of that, which I only was able to start using years later yeah. was if you really want to know, if you're working on something particularly of psychological import and not so much learning to manage symptoms as she, as she was doing with her mm -hmm. asthma and you want to be sure your patient is with you hypnotically, especially if they're not comfortable, she was comfortable. I said, then you don't make the mistake that I made, which is going off on your own. Right chant even though you think it's wonderful and you don't have any evidence in front of you that she's not she's feeling badly or unpleasant she's not squirming around she's not opening her eyes and coming out out whatever that means yeah um the so the message is that and, and this is what, what we teach that you have to have ways of communicating with your patient while they're in this hypnosis stuff and they can perfectly well talk and they can perfectly well have their eyes open and if it helps them to be in hypnosis to have their eyes closed, they can come seemingly alert but not really and have what we know to be alert hypnosis, right. which is all around us all the time and come converse and then add to the experience and then go back to where they were before. Mm -hmm. That is a name that's called fractionation 
not all the way out of the hypnosis, but back in, out, back in, out. And very useful, particularly for people who are doing intense psychotherapy with their hypnosis. But also but, could be helpful for anybody. I mean, if, let's say you're a sports player and you're going to go in and out all the time. Through exactly. You've got to step into the huddle and listen to what the coach has to say and then you've got to get back in your you know, flow. And when you're having a solo in an orchestra yeah. or yeah. when you have a soliloquy in a play and then you have to be in a different state of mind when you're quiet and the other people have lines. Right, right. <laughs> right? So, yeah, good example. And and that's you know that's what, what was the uh, what was the subtitle of that um, research piece you did early in your career again it was self hypnosis relaxation uh, and mental imagery relaxation in in and, and mental imagery because yeah, so RMI yeah because I think that that's one of those pieces that I I feel like I deal with a lot in the work I do with you know say people with with they could come in for any, with any condition it could be they might have ringing in their ears or they might have chronic pain or they might just right. be you know suffering from a lifelong of, of anxiety with all sorts of things it's the same it, to me it feels like the same kind of that 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 autonomic, you know, response or whatever it is, there's, there's some trigger that's just, you know, uh, something's switched on and, and, and there, we, we have to find different mechanisms for how we're going to manage that. You know, for some people, meditation might be a, a, a piece of the puzzle, but the self-hypnosis part of things is really, it, it gets deeper into, you know, I think that the, it's the relationship with the self on, you know, maybe primary, <laughs> but, right. but again, like you're saying, it really kind of gets, it gets deeper into the, into the family, into the family's history and to be able to kind of make, you know, make peace or, you know, be able to, you know, understand how to relax within that. I mean, why, why do people drink so much when they go to Thanksgiving with their families? You know, I think part of it is that they're trying to solve that, that, that piece for themselves, you right. know, with the, the dynamics of their, of their family story. And that, you know, that particular example starts long before Thanksgiving arrives. Yes, when they start course. anticipating, you know, is Aunt Martha going to be herself this like she was last year? <laughs> right. And what's Grandpa going to do? And what about my cousins? They're they're hellions, and you know, uh, and and everything in between. And that expectation, yeah, supersedes. I I deal with that all the time. I almost at the, I don't know. Sometimes at the end. Sometimes earlier in the, in the first visit. Not so much in subsequent visits. Often say to to kids and to parents. So when you were thinking about coming here, what do you think was going to happen here? So, you know, the I don't know is the first words out of every child's mouth. And and my usual answer to I don't know is yes, you do. Hmm. So this isn't the place where we're giving grades on the answers. This isn't the place where you have a time limit. In school, if you say I don't know, you can get away with it because then they go to the other kid. Yeah. Oh, Susie, uh, Michael, uh, Joshua, you know. But here, it's like I, I know that you know. It's okay if it's not precisely correct. That's yeah. not what I'm looking for. Right. I'm interested in what you think. And most of the time, parents say things like, well, kind of what we've been doing, that you kind of get to know us, find out about the problem, what it, what it is, what it isn't. And I said, because I was really wondering if, you, if it ever crossed your mind before you came, if you thought that you were going to come in here with the problem and go out without the problem. And they kind of get this sheepish grin on their face and they say well sort of I said well, wouldn't that be nice I said it, it's not magic and I'm not magic but I do have you know I do have a magic wand 
and I, I pull this off the shelf, and yeah. I say, when, when, uh, when I was seeing Harry Potter as a patient, he came by and he brought this, and, <laughs> and he, said, he said I could have this. He says, well, let's see if it works. And I go, <laughs> I said, so, okay, problem done, bye. And so, you know, usually I get this kind of quizzical look, but I don't get it, and I don't do that until we're near the end of the visit because... And and if and if the visit has not gone the way any of us wanted it to, then I'm not going to do that. Right. Yeah. But but far more far far more often than not, that injects a little bit of humor, and it also calls some reality to the fact that we all, when we have a problem, and we decide we're going to go see somebody about it. Number one, we've made up our mind that it's important enough to go see somebody. Yeah. Number two, that. We're so tired of this that we're going to go see somebody, and we hope they can help. We heard that they might. And yes, we do have a fantasy that it'll help so good that it's like going to the emergency room, getting a broken arm put in a cast or a cut stitched up or a sore throat, you know, get a shot and it's all better, yeah, yeah. God forbid. You know, and, uh, and of course, it's not like that. So I'm putting the fantasy where it belongs. It's okay to have it. But it's not really true. And and I often add that, you know, next time when you come, now that we know each other, we can get into learning some ways to you things you can do to help yourself. And most people and I don't say this just to say it, it's yeah. really true. Most people are surprised how fast things start to change when they learn what they can do. And I'm sticking with you. I'm the coach, but I can't come to your house every night, and I can't call you on the phone every night, and there's certain things you're going to have to do, and we'll get into that next time. So that's more seed planting about how it's going to go. The place that I'm at with some of the work that I'm doing, and the reason that I wanted to have this conversation with you is that I think there's there's an aspect of these things unaddressed that you know we 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 build in such a strong structure um, mentally physiologically even when I say physiologically I'm thinking a little bit more nervous system wise <laughs> but the yeah. way that the, the way that we sort of program this into our into our daily daily activities that if we if we have a certain problem that we haven't been able to overcome or that we have developed this belief system from an early age, and, and I and I hear this a lot of times with people who are coming from a family with, you know, say an alcoholic parent, a family where there's been a lot of uh, emotional or sometimes physical abuse, or where there's they had an early illness, maybe they had asthma as a child, or they had allergies that were really severe, and they and they start to develop this belief system because all the adults are starting to say all these things, you know, ab- about whatever the whatever the circumstances that they now can't, you know, change the language for themselves. Right. And yet, yet. And, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I think you have so much insight into from working with children. But what I, what I see in these, in these adults, you know, it doesn't matter how, what, what their age is. I can, I can see that, that those childhood difficulties in, in this construct as being the, the number one, certainly it seems to me anyways, like it's probably the number one, you know, challenge that they face. Yeah. And it may be important to find that out and it may not. I often, you know, Mm. so, so back to the example of the kid whose tick started when he was eight, I, 
I don't know why they started in the area. We do know that there, and I don't want to spend much time on this, we do know that there are some conditions, the fancy name is pandas, which you may have heard, yeah, yeah. Um, which is a, a an autoimmune kind of phenomenon that can happen where ticks and full-blown Tourette syndrome can begin in response to a strep infection. And it's not very common, but it, it but it does happen, and you, you have to have careful documentation biologically in order to prove it but it can be proven by proper blood studies about did you really have a strep infection or didn't you or was the strep throat that was positive a positive culture of of uh, you being a carrier of that strep organism but it didn't cause your sore throat a lot of people don't know that that's possible Mm -hmm. but in in a family, when a kid gets a strep throat, the chances statistically are that fifty percent of the people in the family are going to get it or already are a carrier. Yeah, yeah. So you should always check the throats of other people. As a dad, you should. Yes. You, you may I've, have heard I've that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, that so I that that particular patient, I asked the mother had there been. Uh, anything back then, and she would know. Of course, it's years ago, yeah, and she yeah. didn't. And and in a recent in the recent increase in his ticks, was there any anything? Because it can also cause a uh, exacerbation, even in somebody who already has the disorder. <clears throat> Short of that, my attitude is quite different, and it goes something. Like, and I say this to patients all the time. I said, you know, so you've been to lots of good people, and you've had a lot of tests, probably too many, um, but. Those were then and this is now. And part of my approach is so what, now what? And I don't mean so what in a nasty way. Yeah. I mean, oh, doctor, I have this bad cough, oh, so what? That's not what I mean. Right, yeah. But, but you know, the so what is all the bazillion questions that doctors appropriately ask to get at the root of something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they find out and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they do tests to a fault. Why does it do that? They will tell you that they do that because that's what they were taught to do and they want to get to the bottom of it and see if they can find everything out. Well, you know, a a colleague of mine wrote a paper many years ago, really true. When you hear hoofbeats, think of zebras. So that's what doctors are taught. But part of this is because, and and if you you want to copy this paper, I can give it to you. Yeah. Part of it is because we, when when she looked at 200 consecutive patients that had been referred to our clinic, there were three of us seeing patients that were referred specifically for hypnosis, 20%, 20%, 40 people had a previously unrecognized biological reason for their problem Hmm. that had not been identified by competent clinicians who had seen them and referred them, go see that guy for hypnosis, go see that woman, she knows what, she'll help you, Mm da-da-da-da. Including including such obvious things as hyperthyroidism with eyes bulging out that was really the cause of that particular child's bedwetting problem. Yeah. Including other other things, and I have a a very famous, um, <laughs> yeah, not so famous, famous amongst people who have been to my workshops, yeah. video talking with a young woman who is now a practicing PhD psychologist in this community. At the oh, time, wow. she was uh, she was uh, fourteen. At the time, she had been to my uh, partner for her headache problem, 
they didn't get anywhere. The mother, who was also a clinical psychologist, the patient's mother, came to talk to my partner and they said, and they decided together that maybe she would benefit from talking to a male psychologist, hmm. a therapist instead. I'm not a psychologist, but would. Yeah. And, and the mother thought that was a good idea. So I met her and I agreed. I, I suggested to her because we happened by coincidence, if you believe in coincidence, we were in the process of preparing for a national behavioral pediatrics symposium that we had developed a new learning method and we were people were going to come from all over the country and we had all these big wigs from various places participating and and I was making one of the videos that was going to be used and I thought well maybe this will be interesting so I interviewed her and it was videotaped mm-hmm. right and uh, then we started working together and, and on her headaches that had no no origin um, that we knew of. You know, it wasn't responding to migraine. Somebody had prescribed medicines for migraine, didn't touch it. Mm-hmm. Um, there were all sorts of theories about it and so on. Um, I saw her, I think, four times, taught her some biofeedback, some self-hypnosis. She improved, but she didn't get all the way better. She cut the frequency of her headaches in half. She cut the intensity of them by two-thirds. She was able to go back to school, though she had been missing school a lot. And as showing this video clip as an unknown to people in the conference. Yeah. Seven or eight small groups of six or seven people each, maybe more, maybe ten, each with a, a leaderless groups, and they were supposed to come up with their own formulation of it. And then, then they presented each, had a spokesman, and they presented their their uh, thoughts about it to the group. And then after the after each had presented their thoughts about it to the group, then one of the experts from the brought from, from was invited to give a talk did not know the outcome and uh, gave their theory and the theory that this famous guy now deceased proposed, he was one of my heroes as a writer and teacher and I only met him when we invited him to teach there and said well I, I don't I don't really know and we haven't heard the end of it and and but I but I don't I have some theories. She has the kind of headaches, not terribly common. Uh, we know that it's not a brain tumor because in 95% of cases, by four months mm-hmm. of a headache, yeah. it, it will show itself in some other symptoms, and she doesn't have that. And sometimes people with a brain tumor headache can point exactly to the space right. place yeah, that it yeah. is, which is very interesting. <clears throat> he says, and uh, I'm not sure, but I'm, but I'm pretty confident, probably has something to do with her mother um, and their relationship. And um, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So at, at the time, now, see, now my memory is a problem. Because I don't remember at the time of the conference if we already knew the answer. Or I think we did. And then we revealed it and, the, and everybody had egg on their face, including <laughs> the professor. Ah. I think that's what happened. But maybe we didn't know until after. And every time I've shown it as an unknown at, at workshops, except for one time, no one, no one, rookies, seasoned, veteran clinicians, no one came up with it except a resident in, in pediatrics hmm. in Switzerland when I was giving this talk in Switzerland came up with the answer, and I'll tell you what he said in a minute. So here's what happened. She was getting better, and then she stopped getting better. And my partner said to her mother, you know, 
one thing that we haven't talked about is just look around the house and see if, for example, there was some a new bleach or a new fabric softener or a new perfume or a new shampoo, something that was different that knew that maybe she started to use. There had been theories, like, for example, she didn't have the headaches when she went on vacation to Florida. So, uh-huh. well, maybe it's something to do with the house, you know, something like that. So she looked around and she didn't know what to do. So the mother decided to call Minigasco, the gas company, and the operator, the phone operator at Minigasco, listened to the story and said, well, honey, you got a gas leak. (laughs) The technicians came to the house. The furnace pilot light was faulty. This was carbon monoxide poisoning. She would get better when she went out of the house Ah. because she'd wash out. Her bedroom was closer to the furnace room. Other, in retrospect, other members of the family had uh, vague, very vague symptoms. Their bedrooms were on the upper floors. It wasn't a total, it was a a flickering kind of pilot light thing because she could have been dead. The whole family could have been dead. But totally amazing. So should, that's should, what should have invited the gas the gas company woman to the conference. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you know, so the, the the logical question. So that unfortunately, that sort of reality drives mm, I know. some of that negative, protective, defensive. I don't want to mess up, kill somebody behavior that doctors have mm-hmm. in varying degrees. Yeah. But it is true. But the rea- the other reality, despite the title of the paper. The other reality is, far and away, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, when you hear hoofbeats, they are horses, Hmm. not zebras. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And the other interesting part of this this case, though, too, is that you had, you know, significant success just from hypnosis and biofeedback. But not... Complete success. Right, right. That's the hook. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the teaching but, point. But, but, right. but I think what it, but just, just for me, you know, it, right. it, it also says, you know, if it, in, in a case where, where you know, it, it is something that we, that is still unsolvable, whether it's environmental or whether it's, you know, a relationship dynamic, maybe it is her mother. We, we, we don't always know those kinds of things. But to have some piece of, of control from the beginning, does you know something in terms of the the uh, the, the hope of the of the patient or of you know help, helping them believe that something can change because exactly. that, that, that's another one of those pieces that that I think people get stuck in and this is another one of those reasons why I think well, like things like what you do and you know what what I do in, in some respects too is is kind of helping people see what you know just a little bit better looks like right. And providing comfort in the context, yeah, so the, that yeah. so that, and 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 you know, these are things I say to my patients too all the time. Because the reality is, despite the fact that it's very hard to have these fill in the blank ticks, headaches, anxiety, whatever whatever you're dealing with, is very hard. The world really is not black and white. Most of the world is gray, mm-hmm. and it's not just one kind of gray. It's all different shades. Yeah. And and so the idea is to get away from the black and the white. Yeah, yeah, and get into how you modulate whatever it is that you experience. Oh, yeah, and, that's great, and and that's that's why 
That's why I'm in the now what. The so what, okay, we may yeah. never know how come those eye blinking started. So, and then I asked the other sort of question rhetorically. Says, Would it be okay with you to, to be done with the tics even if you don't find out the reason for it? And the kids always say that's fine. And the parents are like, nah, I yes. want to know. Yeah, it's okay to want to know. But since we don't know yet, you could, if you were a billionaire, spend the rest of the next 10 years flying all over the world to every next specialist, do all sorts of next tests and blood and x-rays and God knows what. But in the meantime, wouldn't it be nice to feel better? Yeah. And to feel competent and to feel confident and to feel in control and to, because you can do that. So some, sometimes the naysayers about learning these skills say things like, aren't you going to mask something that's really important? No. It's never happened. I saw a girl once many years ago who was uh, a, 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 in a teenage clinic about a, half a block from the children's hospital. That clinic no longer exists, so sorry to say. And she came in and she was a, a, a walking textbook of appendicitis from anybody with any experience yeah. saw her walking. She was hunched over. She was leaning to the right. She was clutching the lower right part of her belly. Now, that's not the only thing that does that. but so And she was a street kid, so she was mm-hmm. by herself. She had come from a, from a, a shelter for runaway youth and 17 years old, so a minor. Yeah. And uh, for seeing anybody who wanted to be seen and... There were about 85% women and and about 90% uh, sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancy okay. and other stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. She was different. but she, So she needed an evaluation. She had never had a pelvic exam. I became an expert at that. Not that day, but before yeah, that. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, that, to me, confirmed the diagnosis. We didn't have to do any blood tests. We, we, confirmed, we did do a, a blood count, and it was totally consistent with appendicitis. And I said, you, you have probably got appendicitis. You're going to need surgery. And uh, between now and then, there's no reason for you to hurt now that you know what you need to know. And you can go back into that calm state you were in that, that we talked you through while you were having the pelvic exam so it wouldn't bother you. And uh, there's no reason for there to be any discomfort or any more vomiting or any or anything between now and then so it turns out that sad to say it took about 16 hours before she could get surgery because they had to get a court order Mm. and declare her on word of the court in order to have the necessary medical because it was a medical emergency but but no painkillers during this no painkillers no vomiting the surgeon who didn't know about the hypnosis that preceded it. We had to, we had to go, even though it was only half a block, I, I insisted that she go by ambulance from there, not walk that half a block, because why? And, and, the, and the surgeon saw her and said, yeah, I agree, it's appendicitis, but I'm not going to touch this without the permission you know, from the court. So thankfully, her appendix didn't rupture in the time of the might well have right but she was pretty content surprised so to the to the nurses and then she had the surgery and the the surgeon wrote in the operative note roaring appendicitis appendix removed stitched up all the stuff they always write 
surprisingly little bleeding. Hmm. Of course, that had been one of the hypnotic suggestions. You can really fake out the surgeon by having very little bleeding. Just bleed the right amount to keep the keep the area moist while the surgeon operates. That makes it easier. And, right. and, and afterwards, you can be surprised how fast you heal and how hungry you are. Usually, people don't eat after surgery, but she was hungry. So it's all about expectation. Yeah. And it's all about comfort and providing expectation. The, the hypnosis did not mask the appendicitis, didn't prevent her from getting surgery. It facilitated the process. Yeah. And that's, that's always the, the message, you know. And it's, it's so, you know, it, it, the one thing I, I picked up from that documentary, and I'm trying to, like, change the way I think about this, this idea of placebo, they, they talked about it as a positive mind state, um, as opposed to a negative mind state, which would be a nocebo or something, right. right? But but the, you know, I, I've always thought about 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 uh, placebo as being like a neutral, and and so, you know, I, I but I guess you know if there was, I think I maybe I've mentioned this to you before, but Dr. Eppeledger, who coined the term craniosacral, which is the kind of work that I do. He was an osteopath, and when he was asked sometime in the 80s at some conference what, how much of the work that he was doing was placebo, he, he said, you know, I don't really, you know, use that word. To me, that, 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 that just is, is evidence of our ability to become creatively involved in our own healing process. Right. And, but it is that positive side of, you know, of, of that shift. And I, I imagine from a, from a hyp- hypnosis or self-hypnosis point of view we we are trying to find the, the the right kind of language you know both i mean you obviously with your with your patients but you know in terms of like handing that handing that off to people it is a it is a form of that then correct it is and the problem is that placebo has become its own worst enemy as a name yeah so right. so correctly so people now teaching undergraduate courses in the placebo response and what it really means and th- yeah. th- things like that um so I think I, I don't use it unless it comes up. I don't even discuss it. But what I do talk about are expectations. And when we teach mm-hmm. hypnosis yeah. workshops, we talk about the key features in any hypnotic experience being expectation and motivation. So if people have a problem and they have a positive expectation about getting it solved and they're motivated, they're going to be more effective more quickly in the context of a positive therapeutic alliance, yeah. right? Then the person is like, well, you know, it's probably not going to, that's what I thought was, well, fine, I'll go because my mom wants me to, but it probably, it's probably not going to do anything because yeah. nothing right. else has. Da, yeah. da, 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 da. And, and I jump right in and join with that and say, and that's probably true until and unless yeah. you change your mindset because you really want to get better. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's about controlling the environment for ourselves too. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that's come up since the uh, 2016 election is that we we are in this, this. There's just a barrage going on between social media and news feeds and everything. Where, I mean, I've I've really you know controlled that environment for myself, and I and I you know not allowing stuff to be on my phone, you know, for, as as one example, so that it, and to turning off you know alerts and all these different things because. Those things can kind of ping your brain at any any time and send you right into that you know into that place, which is really a hypnotic trigger that just keeps happening over and over yep. again about things. Yep, quite right. 
We don't really have to talk politics, do we? No, no. Oh, but, 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 <laughs> no, but, but just right. in, I, I imagine that in your in your practice, as in mine, you know, I feel like it's it's normalized to some extent. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> but I, but there was certainly a year there that I was dealing with a lot of stuff, you know. Yeah. And and I think you know it was it, it's. It, I, I don't always think about those things as all being bad, and part and part of it is I'm just a glass half full kind of person. But I also think that we sometimes have to go through those those things and not av- avoid them either. You know, I think that the feelings that people that were kind of, you know, being triggered or people felt like they're being triggered were things that you know they maybe weren't you know being fully aware of that they should be more aware of too. And I right. think that's one of those pieces. Yeah, and it's a challenge because there's no doubt about the reality that when you do pay attention to some of what's out there it's pretty scary and unsettling and and you can either decide to buy into it and continue to feel that way mm-hmm. or you can think about alternatives and ways that go out about doing your doing whatever you do that's meaningful right. to you and and what what I was kind of saying with all that though is not that I don't want to get into the politics of it so much as like what we attach too, you know, in terms of right. in, in terms of that, you know, the, the language of of all of that as well. Yeah, I want to tell one other quick anecdote, although I don't want to steal the thunder. So I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day on the phone, and uh, and they told me that um, they had had a call out of the blue from a former patient from forty years earlier. Hmm. That patient now being. 57, 58 years old, 17 at the time. Yeah. At the time, the patient had a diagnosis of something called Ewing's sarcoma, which is a really bad cancer of muscle. And often the therapy is amputation. Typically it's in the legs, not always, but mm-hmm. typically, typically the treatment is amputation and chemotherapy, and that's usually file followed in short order by death. Mm. A very, very lethal childhood cancer. And some who survive it develop a second cancer, different type, mm-hmm. 10, 15 years later. Different, different type, but, but common. Second cancers are more common in everybody who has cancer, but not, not by not any means predictable, and not all of them yeah. by any means. But but not unusual, certainly compared to the population who haven't had cancer. Right. Um, but this person who called said, I, I, just, I was just thinking about you, and I just wanted to call you and, and tell you how I'm doing and how my life has been. And, yeah, I've had some, had some problems that were late effects of the chemo, and, uh, but I got through that, and I got through this, and I got through that, and I've been very successful. And I forget exactly what the profession is, but some business that he's been very successful businessman and, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, um, the reason I'm alive is because of you. And, and the reason I'm alive is because of the self hypnosis. And, and the reason I beat the cancer is because of self hypnosis. And I use that in every way I can in my life. And, and, uh, thank you. And I love you. Huh. <laughs> I, and I said, you got to publish that. Yeah. And you got to tell that story. At our workshops, and uh, and the fact the fact that he's re- I mean that he's stayed that this this person this this colleague of yours that 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 they've stayed as this positive piece for the last forty years in this person's life is like yeah. incredible. Yeah, although I have to tell you, it's not unusual. 
Mm. I run yeah. into this all the time. I show to all new patients with with hypnosis that that we know we're going to do hypnosis. I show them a video that was made in 1991. What's that? 28 years ago? Yeah. That I didn't make. It was a professionally done video. The, the WCCO TV did it. They at that time all the TV stations locally had a TV doctor who was their consultant. I yeah. don't know if you remember remember that. And and they did a, a week long series called Healing in the Mind as a five minute segment on the on the uh, ten o'clock evening news. Yeah. And uh, one of those segments was a, a very edited <laughs> version of about an hour yeah. of taping with, with me and two different patients, one a 14-year-old boy with migraine and another a 6-year-old girl with warts, uh, a wart, a relentless <laughs> wart on the bottom of her foot. She, she had had it cut, frozen, wart away, and yeah, yeah. other stuff. And every time that treatment was given, it worked. And every time the wart reappeared, because warts are, after all, caused by viruses. Yeah. She learned self-hypnosis with mothers on camera saying, well, I don't know. I was skeptical. I figured, what the heck? Nothing else worked. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she did self-hypnosis every... Six years old. She did self-hypnosis every day for 10 minutes for six weeks. The wart disappeared, hadn't come back. This, was, this video was done a year after so a year follow-up, no recurrence of the wart. And the, the research is very clear about warts are caused by a virus. And the mm-hmm. research is very clear yeah. that hypnosis is as effective as any other treatment, the difference being that in hypnosis, far and away, most of the time when you get rid of warts by hypnosis, they don't recur. Nobody knows why. Yeah. We, we think it's an immune phenomenon. It must be because this is a virus. But that's the way it is. Yeah. The other one, the 14-year-old boy... The narrative is something like on the order of at the beginning of it, when he first came, he was having headaches several times a week. And by the end of four visits, they were down to once a month. And then they disappeared. And some years after that, I did this research study and sent questionnaires to all the patients who who I had seen for headaches. And it was anonymous. And there was a page at the end that was blank that said, if you have anything else you want to say that we haven't asked you, blah, blah, blah. Please let us know. And he wrote, um, and and, and the, his imagery was playing golf because he's a golfer. So mm-hmm. there was an, they went to a golf course with him that stationed it and filmed him gotcha, golfing. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so he writes in his note, I know this is anonymous, but I, I just wanted to check in with you. I'm from I'm the guy from the golf video, duh. So I knew who it was. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to thank you again because I haven't had a headache since that video. And later I had a, uh, so he, so I hope, wish you luck in the survey. And then, then about, uh, I don't know, several years later I had a, a call or email maybe from the mother, his mother, who said, um, yeah, you said that I could get a copy of that video, so I'd like that if you don't mind. I, I just want you to know that he's, he's married, he has three children, and he has never had a headache since he saw you. Yeah. So that's the same... Same situation, and that's much more common than not. The the results of that survey, which are published, are, are to a person stories about how they transferred that skill to other aspects in their life, how they helped them in surgery, how they helped them in, in their dance class, how they helped them in all sorts of other things. And all of them were much better, if not resolved, with their headaches. Nobody yeah. stayed the same. Nobody got worse. And, and, and that was really the first paper 
to be published in the hypnosis literature of long-term follow-up. Yeah. Um, would it were that we'd have that for all of our patients, right. but, but that takes money. And, and, it's, <laughs> and it's hard, exactly, it takes money, and it's hard, it's hard to keep up with all these people, too. Yeah. But the, the, the part of the reason that I wanted to talk to you is I think what you're hitting on here is really challenges people's belief system of how much, you know, how much do we actually have power over our physiology, you know, right. and, and I and I think it's one of those. It, it, it to me, it feels like the direction that that medicine's going, even though we we you know from a physiological standpoint and getting down to the cellular level, we 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 know a certain amount and we and we we know how to interact with certain kinds of things. At the same time, we are you know as that uh, again that documentary sort of pointed out, we are from from that level of our atomic beings. We are. You know, when it comes to space and energy, we are, we are mostly space in, in our in our atoms. And the biology is better. So so for yeah. for people who are interested in knowing that biology, I'll just give a plug. They can look up anything written by Dr. Amir A M I R Raz R A Z. Okay, he's a uh, neuropsychologist, neurophysiologist. He's now uh, as a research center in California. I forget exactly where, but but you can find him on Google. Okay. And he's done some of the most important research in hypnosis with um, PET scans. I'll have to check that out. Um, Sounds right at my alley. You know, uh, and fun- and so-called functional MRI yeah. studies where people in the scanner look real time are given hypnotic suggestions, and this is measured, and you can see it happening in the brain. So yeah. there's no doubt about the the reality of this is not sham stuff, you know? Right. right. Uh, and thankfully now from his work, and, and he's an incredible speaker, if you ever have an opportunity to hear him speak, he's uh and the funny part is I won't spoil his show. If you ever see him speaking, he, he's, uh, he's an American now, but he began in as, as an Israeli. And when he was a teenager, he learned magic so that he could do magic at birthday parties and stuff and make some money. Yeah. So he's a very incredibly accomplished magician, and he often uses that as part of an intro talk about hypnosis. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. That's great. Well, thanks so much for doing this again with me, and uh, yeah, if uh, if you have any more ideas for, for follow-ups in the future, you, you can contact me this time. Okay, it sounds good. <laughs> I'd be happy to do it. Thanks for asking me. It's oh, a yeah. pleasure. All right, thank you. Dr. Dan, hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. I got so much from listening back to this one. Since our first conversation a couple years ago uh, with, with Dr. Dan, I've thought a lot about the use of, of language. If you're a regular listener, you probably know that I was an English major as an undergrad and continue to take writing courses after that. It's been an incredibly helpful tool language has in, in my practice. And what I'm reminded of, again, in this conversation is that the words we use and say to ourselves are one of our most powerful forms of medicine. Informing the brain, words are the seeds being planted. They can turn into something beautiful with tending and ongoing support, but the wrong words can grow into weeds that overcrowd the garden that we wish to grow. I'm ever so grateful to Dr. Dan for taking the time to do another one of these with me. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. You can email me at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. And don't forget to take a minute if you haven't already to rate this podcast and give it a review. It may turn someone new onto the podcast searching for resource and inspiration. 
Thanks for listening. Be good to yourself. Be kind to each other and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends.